Oh God, be gracious to us and bless us. Make your face to shine upon us, that your way may be known in Fort Collins and throughout the earth, your saving power among all nations. Amen. Please be seated. What makes a healthy church? Well, I can tell you this. It has nothing to do with the size of the building. Sometimes it isn't even a church building. A healthy church is not measured by the number of people who attend services on Sunday or the variety of programs offered. Yet it's interesting when I ask a pastor in the U.S. to tell me about his church, the answer I usually get is he tells me how many services they hold or how many members they have on their role or the programs they offer or the number of children who attended vacation Bible school and were saved. But is that what church is really about? When I think of the church around the world and the churches that my wife and I have visited in so many countries, I think of individual people. Let me explain. In my office, I have photos of people I know, people that I've fellowshiped with, Father Christopher in Tehran, Brother Konkan in Jakarta, a group photo of a pastor's conference where my wife and I taught in Southeast Asia. I look at that photo and think of interactions with a number of people um, in there. Recently, I was on a call to the bishop who ordained me, and I asked him how various people were doing in his diocese. I wondered about converts we've baptized, about students who have graduated from a Bible college he established. I especially wanted to know about Michael, who had spent several months in prison for political reasons. This man was the only Christian in the, that country's government. The bishop told me that Michael was released on bail, but that he still hadn't been charged with any crime because they can't find any evidence of corruption of this brother. This morning, we're going to begin a three Sunday series on 2 Timothy. And I chose this epistle because of the deep love and compassion that I see in it. We read this morning Paul's words to his spiritual son. I remember you constantly in my prayers day and night. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. This epistle has added significance because it is probably the last letter that Paul wrote before his death, at least the last one we know of. As such, it reveals what is uppermost in Paul's heart. It's about the church, but not the church we commonly talk about in the United States. It's about people. Timothy, of course, he's the man who will likely take over Paul's ministry. But Paul also names 23 other specific individuals. There are some positive mentions, but also a few negative. Phygelus and Hermogenes, who turned away from Paul, and Demas, who was in love with this world, and Alexander the coppersmith, who did him great harm. He gives Timothy a special warning about this man who opposed the gospel. But Paul commends many for their faith, starting with two women. 
Timothy's grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. He names Onesiphorus who refreshed Paul while he was in prison. This man searched for Paul in Rome and wasn't embarrassed by the fact that Paul was in prison. Later he meant in the epistle he mentions Luke, the physician. He wants Timothy to bring Mark with him to Rome. Now that's an interesting note because a few years earlier, Mark had abandoned Paul and Barnabas in the middle of their missionary journey. And later that was the cause of a split between the two with Barnabas taking Mark to Cyprus while Paul teamed up with, Timothy, with uh, Silas for his second missionary journey. We don't know the details, but somehow in those intervening years, Mark has apparently regained Paul's trust. We really ought to find that encouraging. Sure, we will have disagreements in church, but that should never ruin our fellowship. Paul now sees Mark not as a failure, but as he says, very useful for ministry. There are two more names I, that catch my eye in at the very end of the epistle, Prisca and Aquila. This is a married couple who hosted Paul at their home and business in Corinth when that church was born. Paul mentions them by name in several of his letters. This couple should be an inspiration for all of us for how we can serve the body of Christ. So many names, each with a story, each one bringing back memories for Paul, each one triggering a prayer or prayers. Paul was sometimes with a congregation a couple of months, other times two or three years. It's the people he left behind were important that were important, not building programs. Remember, Paul was the founding pastor of the church in Ephesus. Apparently, Timothy is now the rector. But the church is in good hands. There's been a good handoff, a smooth transition. When I complete this interim pastor assignment, people back in Colorado Springs and on my prayer team that prays for us every week, they're going to ask me about Christ our hope. I can tell you, I won't be telling them about the new building that we meet in or how many services we have. I'll be telling them about the homes we visited and the faith stories you told us. Joe and I are going to look at the directory and the pictures and remember the prayers we prayed with you and the meals we shared and the laughs and the tears. I'll be telling them about your new rector, Father Jeremy, and how this man is just the right leader for you. You, Christ our hope, are the church. You will remain in our hearts. We will think of you and pray for you and ask for news about you. And that's the spirit of this epistle. Second Timothy is one of three pastoral letters. First and second Timothy and Titus and Philemon is sometimes also considered a pastoral epistle. Paul is writing to his protégés to help them build and maintain healthy churches. While these letters are addressed to pastors, they are not just for pastors. These three epistles give us insights into what makes up a successful, healthy congregation. And I think 2 Timothy is particularly relevant to Christ our hope, as we will see. So in that spirit, let's look today at the first chapter. I would like for us to briefly explore three aspects 
of a healthy church. First, a healthy church grows mature disciples. Timothy had spiritual roots in his family. We meet this, we first meet this young man in Acts chapter 16 when Paul and Silas came to Derby and Lystra. It says there was a disciple, Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer and a Greek father. It's not clear whether or not the father was a believer. As we see in 2 Timothy 1.5, grandmother Lois and mother Eunice had a huge impact on Timothy's spiritual formation. But it is also said that he was well spoken of by the brothers in Lystra and Iconium. In other words, this congregation nurtured this young man's faith and saw his potential as a leader. Both family and congregation prepared Timothy for ministry. So Paul recruited him and enrolled the young man in a seminary program. Now this seminary didn't have a single location. Timothy's curriculum was to travel with the Apostle Paul. His library was whatever scrolls Paul had with him. When the student had questions, Paul was his mentor. There were opportunities for him to practice what he learned in various cities they visited. At some point, I would expect Paul probably assigned Timothy to preach and then coached him in how he could improve his sermons. That's not a very bad preparation for ministry, is it? Eugene Peterson, who through his books on pastoral ministry has been my mentor these past few months, writes the following, spirituality cannot be opposed. It must be grown. Timothy's faith was nurtured and grown in a godly home, but that was supported by his congregation, and that was his spiritual foundation. It's vital for us to keep in mind why the church exists. Yes, we gather to worship. We need to support each other in many ways, in various ways, materially and spiritually. But let's not forget that we are charged by our Lord to go and make disciples, teaching them all I have commanded you. Our business, if you want to call it that, is making disciples. And that's what Timothy's grandmother, mother, and the church in Leicester did. Let me emphasize that this spiritual formation happens best if it starts in the home. As a boy, I remember how most nights my father led us in prayer and then prayed a blessing over me and my sister. Joe remembers seeing her parents kneeling by their beds at night and praying for each of their children. But parents need the support of the church, which is where Sunday schools and youth groups can come in. But it should be more than just programs. There should be strong relationships developed. Young people should know that they are loved by the congregation. This is the opportunity that Christ our hope has. Verse 7, Paul said that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but rather a spirit of power, love, and self-control. Each of us, we're going to have highs and lows, ups and downs. That's normal. But as a congregation, we have the Holy Spirit to strengthen us. And when one is down, to lift another the, that person up. And we do that through our relationships. We do it through prayer. 
which is why the prayer chain that's so strong in this church is so important. The result should be Timothy's that emerge and can go into the world on mission and advance the kingdom of God. Two Sundays ago, we commissioned one of your members to overseas ministry. My prayer is that among the many children in this church, all will become, all will become mature disciples and many will someday be sent out for, mi for mission. One more thought I want to leave on this point. There's a wonderful opportunity in this congregation for older men and women to minister to younger families. As Joe and I visited families in this congregation, there was one prayer request every one of them asked, and that is for wisdom on how to juggle work and school with COVID-19 changing the situation almost every day. I think this may be an opportunity for those of us who are older and whose children are grown to help and assist these young parents who are struggling. I know that this has already started to be discussed and I just want to encourage you to be creative and to persevere and see how you can minister to one another in these difficult times. A second uh, observation, a healthy church grows through suffering. We see this in verses 8 through 12. Paul writes, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Paul says that he was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, and in verse 12 says, Which is why I suffer as I do, but I'm not ashamed. Paul is not ashamed that he is in prison. Why? He says, For I know whom I believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. If we are truly devoted to following our Lord Jesus, we can expect opposition. That's not an embarrassment. It's actually a privilege. Here's the thing. The church is strongest when it is refined by suffering. A dear friend of mine, Nick Ripkin, has done perhaps the most exhaustive research on persecution around the world after he and his family suffered terribly while uh, missionaries in Africa. He's written two books that I highly recommend, Insanity of God and Insanity of Obedience. He tells of his first trip into China where he met Pastor Samuel Lamb at a small gathering of Chinese church leaders. Pastor Lamb had spent years in prison because he was so outspoken about his faith and bold in leading the church. And he still bore visible scars of his on his flesh from the torture he endured. As Lamb spoke, he said, in this room are three security police that I recognize. By the way, that's not unusual. In China, the police routinely infiltrate Christian gatherings. Lamb said, these men mistreated me when I was there in their fine prison. I'm so glad they are here today. And he looked directly at these three men and said, I've wanted to see you and tell you three things. I love you. I forgive you. And God has brought you here today so that you might believe in Jesus and have eternal life. Wow. That 
is a powerful witness to the enemies of the church. That's an example of how suffering can actually be used to strengthen the church. I want to say something important to Christ our hope. I know you have been through some suffering these past years. These last few months have been hard with your founding pastor moving away and the move to a new location and then are not being able to all meet together because of the pandemic. I would like to tell you that things are going to get better. I'd like to, but I can't. I'm not sure if or when we're going to return to old normal. However, let me also say this. The church doesn't seem to thrive in comfort. Sure, it may grow in numbers, but suffering weeds out long, lukewarm Christians or toughens them up. Paul is writing to Timothy from prison and he knows he will soon be executed. Our thinking in America, we've got to get Paul released. Let's start a prayer campaign. Let's march in front of the embassy and demand his freedom. After all, just think of what he can accomplish if he's freed from prison. Now, I do believe we should pray for our brothers and sisters who are in prison, and there are quite a few around the world. But also consider this. God may not answer our prayers in the manner we think he should. I'm sure that that Timothy and the believers in Ephesus were praying for Paul's reliefs. However, if God had answered that prayer, then we would not have many of the epistles we have in our Bible. Listen to what Paul writes from prison in Philippians chapter 1. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And just how has the gospel advanced? Paul explains, most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. You see, the church before was relying on Paul to do all the work. Now he's not there. So many others have picked up and are now doing the work of the church. Nip, Rick, Nip, Nick Ripken wrote, wrote in his blog earlier this week, our world is in crisis and people are afraid. Fear makes us hoard weird items from the grocery store. Fear causes us to lash out at government leaders and perceived political adversaries. Fear causes hearts to pound as we worry about jobs, house payments, and that even now a virus might be racing through our bloodstream. Fear makes us a victim. Jesus brings peace, and when peace makes no sense. That's Paul's perspective. God puts in us in impossible circumstances so that his power is made evident. God has called us to a holy calling, which is to demonstrate the grace and love of God in Christ Jesus. Paul's confidence is summed up in verse 12 of this of our passage. I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. 
That's what we are building up here at Christ Our Hope. We don't wallow in our suffering during these times. We don't live in fear because we know whom we have believed. One more thing, a third point. A healthy church fiercely protects the faith. Listen to Paul's charge to Timothy beginning in verse 13. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. As I read those words, I can't help but think about how the Anglican Church in North America, of which Christ our hope is a part, was born out of severe trial. The core problem that finally caused the separation of the Episcopal Church was revision of the gospel. The world's agenda replaced faith and obedience to Jesus in scripture. The leadership of that denomination by their own admission were in open rebellion to the gospel. Fortunately, a few brave leaders stood up and said no we know whom we have believed. For those of you who want to know more, I recommend the book Never Silent by Bishop Thaddeus Barnum. It's a page turner actually about those who stood up to the heretics. And with the help of a couple of brave bishops from Rwanda and Southeast Asia, a line was drawn. We are here today because of those brave leaders. That's Paul's charge to Timothy. Don't compromise the faith. We believe in Jesus. We know him. We've experienced the power of his resurrection. Today, there are some who want to deny the resurrection and yet still call themselves Christians. They claim the resurrection is just a metaphor. It didn't really happen. But if Christ didn't rise from the dead, then what are we doing here? The evidence is overwhelming. We know Jesus because he is alive. We have experienced his presence through his spirit. His resurrection assures us that death is conquered. That's our hope. That is Christ our hope. Listen to what Paul writes in chapter 2 of this epistle. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no, no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Pretty strong warning from the Apostle. We are entrusted with that truth, and we celebrate it every Sunday. We guard that truth in the power of the Holy Spirit. We guard it by holding firmly to what is revealed in the Scriptures. We're going to look more at that point next week when we stand firm in the truth yes we will suffer but that's suffering for the right reason the world will try and undermine this gospel we must stand together against that and God will advance his kingdom through our faithfulness this past Tuesday our senior warden Julie Galley challenged the vestry to pray and fast she said we need to prepare for tough times ahead. I think she's correct. 
We should not expect that things will get easier in the near future. We can pray for peace and, and a return to normal, but if that doesn't happen, let's not, there's no need to worry or be afraid. We will continue to meet. We will build disciples. We will read and study and obey the scriptures. We will come to the table each Sunday and feed on the body of Christ. We will persevere in suffering as we cling to our faith. That's the message that Paul gives to his protege, Timothy. And I believe that's the message that they would give us today as we read in the word. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you for the words of your servant Paul to Timothy. May we, by your power, share in suffering for the gospel. By your Holy Spirit, enable us to guard the good deposit entrusted to Christ our hope. May we as a congregation faithfully raise up new, a new generation of disciples who will continue the mission of your church to make disciples of all nations. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.